Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, PhD pals all to the 30 Years War episode 3. So last time we delved into some pretty heavy stuff. Don't worry for those of you worrying when we're going to get into the fun details of diplomacy and intrigue and characters etc. That's all on the way. I know background has become something of a dirty word in the last few months but these background episodes really are important for laying the foundations of this story. You can't really just jump into the 16th and 17th centuries without knowing who's who, what's what, and how everything works. The Thirty Years' War didn't erupt for a singular or straightforward reason. If it had, then Peter H. Wilson wouldn't have needed to write so many articles about the causes of the Thirty Years' War, and his book on the Thirty Years' War wouldn't need to have been so freaking enormous. As far as enormous books go, it's about half the size of my book on the Thirty Years' War, which is coming out soon, don't you worry. The Thirty Years' War was sparked by several conflicting ideas and concerns. Much of these concerns can be found in the cracking edifice of the Holy Roman Empire, but not quite all of them. For now, in this episode, we're going to tackle an important aspect of our ongoing story. Last time, we looked at a bit of the background of the Holy Roman Empire itself, and how religiously it was set up. But we didn't quite get to the point of looking at the electors, and now we're going to do that. The seven electors in the Holy Roman Empire that are together tasked with choosing the emperor. It sounds kind of democratic in a way, but in actual fact, the game was rigged from the start. Our attentions will also be given to the creation of the two confessional alliance blocks in the empire, which electors supported what side, and where the French under King Henry IV, managed to fit into all of this. This episode is somewhat involved, as is our custom, but if you're ready, then we'll begin. According to the historian Brennan C. Purcell, the electors were the foundations and fixed pillars 
of the Empire, and they were tasked with protecting the Empire's constitution and ensuring its stability. It was these electors that enjoyed sovereign rights over their lands, many elements of which were often spread out and bordered by other princes equally eager to maintain some form of legislative independence. Had the Empire been less of a federation and more of a monarchy, the electors would never have enjoyed such freedoms, but the seven individual rulers were permitted to exercise lordship over their own resources, subjects and lands in pretty much any way they saw fit. They were effectively miniature kings who were supposed to look up to the emperor as their overarching sovereign. As per the terms of the Golden Bull which laid down which elector was which in the empire, the electors were supposed to convene periodically to discuss pertinent issues of defence, religious policy or any other business which required their attentions. Below the electors in the pecking order of the Holy Roman Empire could be found virtually every other actor within the HRE. The minor princes, the knights, the bishoprics and the dukes. Territorially speaking, these individuals were grouped into ten geographically, supposedly organised, circles. These circles, or Reichskreis, were arranged primarily to organise local defences among the smaller princes. The Holy Roman Empire was thus a kind of jigsaw puzzle. It was constituted of several pieces of varying size and importance. Incidentally, the historian Tim Blanning, in his really excellent biography of Frederick the Great, gives one of the most concise and accessible definitions of the Holy Roman Empire's inner workings. Tim Blanning writes that the Holy Roman Empire is best thought of as a composite state whose individual rulers enjoyed most, but not all, of the powers usually associated with a sovereign. They were bound together by the allegiance they owed to the emperor, their subjection to imperial law administered by two imperial courts, and through representation in the Reichstag, or imperial diet, at Regensburg. The diet was divided into three colleges, the first comprising the electors, the second and largest was out of the princes, comprising 34 ecclesiastical princes, plus two collective votes shared by about 40 monasteries and abbeys, and 60 secular princes, plus four collective votes shared by 100-odd imperial counts. The third college consisted of 51 free imperial cities, the self-governing republics subject only to the authority of the emperor. The institutional structures had been fixed around the year 1500, but the world had moved on since then, divorcing power from appearance. So, did you get all that? The sheer scale of the imperial diet's scope, and the vast range of potentates and groups that the institution represented, seem impossibly complex. How on earth did it all work? One can imagine the imperial diet paralysing itself with mundane matters as the important issues are pushed aside in the name of regional or dynastic squabbles. In a body which attempted to give a voice to so many disparate elements of the empire, one imagines that there were surely no opportunities for every voice to be adequately heard. Yet, the apparently doomed imperial diet was not always so unwieldy. Statistically, this is because the imperial diet in its full and complete form did not meet all that often, and only in times of immense need or danger would all members of those three sweeping social estates, member the clergy, the commons and the princes, be called upon to sit for long and regular periods. 
Ideally, the institution was meant to meet and deliberate on relevant issues and challenges as they appeared. Yet this mission became massively complicated from the early 16th century, as that bugbear of Charles V, the Reformation, turned the electors, not to mention the individual members of the estates, the circles, and the free cities, into a house divided along deeply sensitive lines. That said, the Diet was capable of producing important legislation and ratifying critical agreements, such as the aforementioned 1555 Peace of Augsburg. The net result of this unfortunate trend towards religious division was that the Diet rarely agreed or reached a consensus on its debates. As Lutheranism spread and further split into conflicting creeds, it drew much of the electors, not to mention the minor princes and dukes below them, into broad confessional camps. The Holy Roman Emperor, a Habsburg institution since that family had monopolised the office in 1438, now had to contend with electors of a different religious persuasion to themselves. If the Catholic Habsburgs thus wished to hold on to their imperial position, they would have to mobilise their supporters and resources, co-opt the Spanish branch of the Habsburg family and do all they could to cajole, scheme and manipulate their religious and dynastic opponents. As the subsequent years would demonstrate, they were also willing to fight a war for this monopoly, if necessary. After the crisis over the succession in Cologne in the 1580s, the different religious groups within the Holy Roman Empire seemed destined to separate further. The uncomfortable divorce of much of the empire's lands from the old Catholic religion, and the rapid pace of the counter-reformation then within the Habsburg hereditary lands, created a situation which only bred further religious tensions. Thus, once war broke out with the Ottoman Empire in the last decade of the 16th century, the Habsburgs were faced with a situation whereby traditionally unreliable elements within their lands would now have to be relied upon. If they wanted to fight the Ottomans effectively, in other words, they would have to call upon the Lutheran and growing Calvinist populations within the empire in order to do it. For this to happen, the Habsburg emperors would have to grant certain concessions to those same subjects as the price of their aid. Such tactics on the part of the Protestants were far from original. They are strikingly similar to those tactics employed by opportunistic individuals and that other important but difficult to define polity in Europe, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And hey, look at that, what a handy segue. Just in case you weren't aware, When Diplomacy Fails podcast doesn't just produce the Thirty Years' War, it's also producing another show called Poland Is Not Yet Lost. But if you want to access that, and by that I mean it's an analysis of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century. So the story's fast-forwarding a bit, but it's by no means alien to what you're hearing about here Dynastic struggles, political intrigue, a whole heap of diplomacy, fascinating characters, wars and many more things besides all take place within the realm of Poland is not yet lost. It's a really fascinating story that I've been researching and writing for, well, several years really, and which has started to release since about the beginning of January 2020. So if you want some extra content in addition to this 30 Years War series, then make sure to check Poland is not yet lost out. 
You can access it and listen to it by paying just $5 a month to When Diplomacy Fails' Patreon profile. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or click on the link in the description below. I'm really starting to think that I should make a t-shirt of click on the link in the description below because it's, I feel like I say it every single time I record now, several times at least, but the link is there, the options to get more content are there, and all it'll cost you is the price of that really not that nice coffee that you got from Starbucks that they burnt and that they really could have done a better job on, and to be honest, like, they didn't even spell your name right, so who are you kidding spending more than $5 every time you go in there? Why not spend it on when diplomacy fails instead and access even more history? That's my awkward sales pitch and my really handy segue, but let's go back to our 30 years war story. Because while the difficult to define polity, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, contained populations who tried to leverage the difficulty of their ruler in order to get more powers for themselves, when we look at the Holy Roman Emperor, the concessions that the Protestants tried to get once the Holy Roman Emperor went to war with the Ottomans stand out as particularly striking. Not just striking, really, but necessary in light of the constitutional paralysis of the Empire's traditional institutions, most notably in the case of the Imperial Diet. You see, we might have made it sound as though the Imperial Diet was a very important thing for the Empire altogether, and it certainly was, but you should know that between 1555 and 1603, in spite of the tumultuous events taking place within and without of the Empire's borders, this Diet met just six times reflecting perhaps its inherent inability to deal objectively with that empire's problems. Problems, by the way, which included the voting of taxation for war against the Ottoman Turks. And who was holding this heavy imperial crown? Well, Rudolf II held the heavy mantle of Holy Roman Emperor from 1576 to 1612, and during this, no doubt, exhausting span of nearly 40 years, he faced a myriad of problems in his efforts to mobilise the disparate elements of the empire against external threats. Unless he called a diet, the emperor could not secure taxes for his war against the Turks. This dependence echoes the Habsburgs' contemporaries, as the English model in particular comes to mind. That relationship in England saw the king be dependent upon parliament for the approval and raising of taxation, and the eventual breakdown of that system led to a uniquely British civil war from the 1640s. Rudolf would not live to see a civil war, per se, but he was dependent upon his subjects for financial support, lest the Turks would run roughshod over Habsburg defences and reach the gates of Vienna, as had happened in 1529. The historian Geoffrey Parker noted that despite Rudolf's reliance on Protestant taxes and support, he determined to turn against these same elements in Hungary at the first opportunity. Geoffrey Parker noted how The Balkans might have been liberated had Rudolf not decided to use the opportunity to engineer a revolt in Transylvania and to exploit the presence of his armies both there and in Hungary to restore the Roman Catholic Church to a position of supremacy. This insensitive behaviour flew in the face of the religious demographic facts in Hungary where in 1606, even papal agents could find only 300 Catholic clergy in Hungary, and, as Geoffrey Parker concludes, 
There were no Catholic-controlled towns and virtually no Catholic nobles in all of Hungary. So how do we explain Rudolf's behaviour in such circumstances where the Habsburg Emperor seemed more determined to persecute his own subjects than prosecute the war with the Ottomans to a successful conclusion? One explanation has it that Rudolf was, by the turn of the century, bordering on mental instability and only the election of his brother Matthias could soothe the tensions and strife within Hungary which he had created. But Hungary was far from the only problem Rudolf had helped to cultivate. The imperial city of Donauwerth, located in the Swabian Circle in the Holy Roman Empire, had enjoyed a status of joint confessional tolerance between both Catholics and Protestants, in spite of the rapidly dwindling Catholic population there. The sunny southwest enjoyed pretty good harvests and didn't really have to worry too much about defensive measures since it was effectively on Maximilian of Bavaria's doorstep. Now remember, Donauwerth was an imperial city. It was a free city, so it was able to rule its own affairs. It wasn't by any means ignorant of what Maximilian of Bavaria wanted, but Maximilian of Bavaria couldn't just rush in there and demand to have the city do as he pleased. Now, could he? Well, problems started to emerge in the sunny city of Donauwerth in March 1607, when Rudolf approved of Duke Maximilian of Bavaria's request. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...to journey to the city in defense of the Catholic populace there. The reason for Maximilian Bavaria requesting that he go to this free city on his doorstep? It was said, but not necessarily proved, that the Catholics in Donauwerth were suffering from a lot of discrimination and even violence from the Protestant majority. Maximilian of Bavaria's arguments seemed to do the trick because in August of 1607, the imperial ban was passed against Donauwerth, and this effectively granted the Duke of Bavaria free reign to do exactly what he pleased. An imperial ban, by the way, was the medieval equivalent of getting excommunicated 
in the empire meant that your lands were forfeit and pretty much anyone could land on your lands and take them as they wished. You could be dogpiled at a moment's notice and there was nothing you could do about it save for throw yourself at the emperor's mercy and hope for the best. Travelling with much haste before the issue could be put to the imperial diet because perhaps he suspected that this wasn't all, strictly speaking, legal, Maximilian invaded the free city of Donnevirth in December 1607 and he was then permitted by the emperor to pretty much annex the once independent city into his duchy as payment for his services. The plainly unconstitutional nature of this incident did not seem to unduly bother the Duke of Bavaria who was himself a staunch Catholic and, in the words of Brennan C. Purcell, a competent, disciplined, rich prince. Maximilian was also intensely ambitious and one of the most influential Catholic potentates of the Empire. We will see more of him in the next episode. It was also impossible to deny that the incident at Donnevirth reflected really badly upon Rudolf, who was meant to uphold the principles of the Empire. Bavarian dukes, just in case it needed to be said, had no business either intervening in a free city outside of their duchy or annexing it into their lands. Protestants understandably cried foul, insisting that Rudolf had stood idly by and allowed the travesty to occur. Rudolf, for his part, did himself or his family's image no favours when he refused to follow Saxon advice and issue a statement denying that his judgement was sectarian. This is because, as Peter H. Wilson noted, Rudolf's inflated sense of majesty prevented him from seeing the need to explain his actions. And so it fell to Maximilian of Bavaria to justify his actions and the Emperor's complicity in the process, undermining, as Peter H. Wilson put it, the Emperor's credibility and raising the spectre of arbitrary rule. Rudolf's faux pas had been terribly pricey. Not only had the Emperor squandered any goodwill he had cultivated over the last few years, he had also allowed a mere duke to speak for him. Little surprise that the events in Donnevirth led to a hardening of religious divisions in Europe, in the words of Geoffrey Parker. Since they were no longer confident about trusting the traditional legal and constitutional institutions of the HRE, so long as a Catholic majority remained within them, Protestant princes began to drift away from these checks and balances right at the point when increased debate on the interpretations of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg were taking place. But the major consequence of the Donnevirth incident was that it compelled the Emperor, perhaps moving back into the realm of reality, to bring together the princes of the Empire in spring 1608 with an imperial diet. The diet proved to be the perfect forum for the Protestants to air their grievances in public, as one historian noted how Many of the Protestants walked out of the Regensburg Diet in April 1608, leading to its dissolution. In May 1608, several Protestant princes made an agreement called the Protestant or Evangelical Union. They pledged mutual assistance in case of attack. Indeed, it was within the text of their contract, signed by the potentates of the Evangelical Union, that the Donnevirth incident was directly referenced as justification for the creation of a joint defensive league between several Protestant princes. 
where once the traditional checks and balances on the actors within the Empire protected one's realm from violence, now it was the case that these same institutions, in the words of those contemporaries who wrote up the Evangelical Union's contract, have become the subject of a damaging misunderstanding, as well as being broken and illegally opposed by many with hostile and violent actions, so that one is no longer sure of certain aid. Incidentally, the creation of this League provoked a similar incendiary response from the Empire's Catholic potentates, who established their own Catholic League in July 1609. The contract of the Catholic League also claimed that a dangerous misunderstanding had dislocated the traditional institutions that were tasked with protecting the Empire's actors, and that it was much to be feared that... If this state of affairs continues much longer, the violence will mount progressively in the Empire, so that peace-loving, obedient Catholic imperial estates will be overrun and violated by the troublemakers and, consequently, nothing less can be expected than further oppression of the old, true Catholic religion, the unique route to salvation and its adherence, contrary to justice and imperial law. In light of such bleak predictions, the Catholic League resolved itself to combine defensively to implement and further uphold the holy imperial laws and their beneficial and worthy religious and profane peace and its associated executive ordinance. With the Evangelical Union and Catholic League leading opposing groups of princes and potentates within the HRE, the opportunities for the underlying tensions to erupt into open conflict appeared anxiously numerous. All it would take was an excuse, a spark to light the tinder which would engulf the whole empire in religious and sectarian flames. Indeed, historians tend to use the metaphor of a pressure cooker to describe the tensions which appeared destined to boil over by this point. It was at this moment, just as Duke Maximilian of Bavaria was putting the finishing touches on the Catholic League, that news began to emerge of a new succession crisis in the heart of Germany. The newly built confessional alliances were suddenly required to pick a side, as Duke John William of Udick Cleve and Berg, Count of Ravensburg and Mark, died childless and heirless on the 25th of March 1609. John William's possessions included wealthy, religiously diverse populations, whose estates had agitated in the past for support from like-minded religious powers. Spain, the Dutch, the Elector of Brandenburg, the Elector of the Palatinate, and several other minor princes all proclaimed their own vested interests in the affair, which represented the first test of the rapidly arming confessional blocks of the Holy Roman Empire. It remained to be seen whether a calm and cooperative diplomatic effort could ease the tensions which this crisis had created, or whether it was this succession crisis that was to have the distinction of lighting the metaphorical tinderbox, which so many years of rising tensions and divisions had cultivated. In 1609, according to one historian, Europe was too exhausted to fight the Thirty Years' War. This exhaustion would soon dissipate, or at least be ignored, in time for that tragic eruption in 1618, but for the moment, peace treaties and agreements, however temporary, were signed, and conflict avoided. 
even as the Holy Roman Empire seemed to be splintering to disparate religious camps, the English, Spanish, Dutch and North Italian potentates were more than a little interested in preserving the peace rather than jeopardising it. Avoiding conflict was at the top of the list of the King of France and Navarre, Henry IV. Far from an easy journey to the French crown, Henry IV had in fact only made his peace with Spain in 1598, wherein Madrid committed to interfere no longer in the French royal succession. The French and Habsburgs had made a habit of interfering in each other's business and exploiting the other's difficulties, so in the sense that this policy of interference was at an end, the Peace of Vervon in 1598 was highly significant. This enabled the King of France, Henry IV, to focus on domestic and religious matters, with the result that the Edict of Nantes emerged later in the year. Perhaps now the new French king would have the opportunity to rebuild his shattered, exhausted kingdom, and to repair the divisions of the French people which had led them to inflict such atrocities upon one another. Henry IV is supposed to have said that there were three things he did not believe, wrote the historian Charles Howard Carter. That Queen Elizabeth was really a virgin, that the Archduke Albert was a good soldier, and that the King of Spain was a good Catholic. While Henry may not have been well positioned to pass judgment on the first point, he knew a great deal about soldiering and the difficulties of the religious question. Indeed, Henry's military innovations have been studied by several historians who assessed his contribution to the military revolution in European thought and practice. And as a cheap plug, we've looked at it too, so if you want to know more about the man's military exploits, check out some of our older episodes. In religious terms, Henry knew all too well how the potency of one's faith could instigate a devastating conflict. The French wars of religion, of which he had played a key role, were only completely brought to a conclusion with Henry's conversion to Catholicism, with the king's famed phrase, Paris is well worth a mass. The French succession had been a terminal question in France for much of the second half of the 1500s, thanks to the destabilising impact of the Reformation on that country and the reduction in the powers of the ruling house of Valois. The French wars of religion did not merely result in the country slipping into a religiously charged orgy of violence. They also saw France swap the medieval house of Valois for that of Bourbon, and in the process, they laid the foundations for the French eclipse of Spain in the decades to come. Hindsight tells us that France would replace Spain as the dominant power in Europe, wrote the historian Myron Gutman, adding that, Even had that been visible after 1598, the continuing domestic difficulties faced by Henry IV and the sheer exhaustion of France after decades of civil war limited his actions. Surely this conflict was the most important in Europe after 1600, and its settlement in 1659 demonstrated the victory of France. Of course, this fast-forwards our story a bit. France and Spain wouldn't go to war until 1635, so all of that was still to come, and France at that stage would be led by Henry's son, Louis XIII. But in the turn of the century, 
Henry IV was faced with a dire strategic situation, as the Habsburgs possessed land to his east along the Rhine, to his north in the Spanish Netherlands, and down south in the Pyrenees, which guarded the border between the French and Spanish realms. To overcome this dangerous situation, Henry would have to ally himself with those smaller powers caught up in Spain's orbit. In addition, the French king would always have to keep an eye on the Holy Roman Empire to ensure that whatever machinations were concocted by the Austrian Habsburgs, these would not adversely affect his passive-aggressive struggle with the Spanish Habsburgs. As he was fighting two branches of the same family, with wealth, power and resources that far outstripped his recovering realm, it was hardly surprising that Henry was drawn to events in the empire, which left the united duchies of Ulick, Cleve, Berg, etc. without an heir. The end destination was far from certain, but to those that had lived through these fractious years, it appeared as though the empire was determined to position herself consistently on the edge of a precipice. There was no guarantee that, as she tipped this way or that, the longed-for peace which had arrived in 1555 could now hold, just as there was no guarantee that the consequences of any conflict could be kept within the limits of the empire, or that these consequences would not be hijacked by the other powers and injected into the other rivalries which populated the continent at the time. Next time, we'll resume this tense story by looking at the succession crisis and the conflict and confusion it spawned within the Empire and without. Expect intriguing diplomatic machinations, fascinating political dances, and a great deal of fuss to be made over some very small pieces of land, as the French make their presence felt. I hope you'll join me for that next week, history friends, but until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 3 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 